it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, September 2nd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here and with us every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, and around the clock on demand for free every day on our podcast when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com for all of that information. It's right there. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Guy Benson Show. If you're new to the program, delighted that you're here. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. And in that capacity, the latter one, I'll be co-hosting the big show Saturday and Sunday on Fox News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern time if you're interested in that. Here on the radio side, line up for you, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican Wisconsin. He'll be here later on in the hour. Bill Barr, the former attorney general, will join us in studio in our middle hour. He made some news earlier today on America Reports on the news channel. We have him here for an extended interview on a number of subjects. I am really looking forward to that. I think you're going to want to hear it. Just saying. And in our final hour, Julie Banderas, our colleague, will be here. She's out with a new children's book. We'll get into that and some other related topics. Plus, some Q&A with producer Christine. She's very curious about my vacation She's got a bunch of questions. We will do our best to get to those at the very end of the show. Our happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink and the Home Stretch. So that's coming up at the tail end today as we sort of uh, sail and coast into the weekend together. As we begin today's show, I honestly debated whether or not I wanted to even dignify President Biden's speech last night on democracy by making it the lead story and talking about it here on the program. I'll be candid with you. I didn't watch it. We had a friend in town catching up on her life. I had better things to do than to watch this flailing president come out and give a hardcore partisan speech a few weeks out from an election to try to distract from all the failures of his administration, from Afghanistan to inflation and so many of the causes driving that, to some of the lawless actions he's been taking on student loans, for example, the incompetence on monkeypox vaccines and the baby formula shortage, the border crisis, crime, the list goes on and on. If the American people are going to vote in November on the performance of President Joe Biden and his party that controls all of Congress right now, if that is what will be the referendum effectively in November, they will lose. What Joe Biden wanted to do last night was to pretend like this was some sort of important primetime address that the network should cut into their programming to cover on a matter of national import, like war or a huge 
disaster of some sort. It is rare to request that kind of airtime. And as Mark Thiessen has written, one of our regular guests at The Washington Post, former presidential speechwriter, it's unheard of to make that request for a speech that is obviously going to be a nasty, rancorous, partisan campaign speech. Not a speech from the office of the president, but from a campaigner assailing the opposition. That's what they tried to get away with. The big broadcast networks didn't bite. There were game shows and law and order. Not Joe Biden. We didn't cover it at Fox. I think cable news competitors did. And having now read about the speech and watched clips of the speech, it was the right decision not to treat this as a serious presidential address worthy of primetime network programming. It just wasn't. It was this ugly, dark speech that was meant to, number one, distract, as I said, from the track record of this president and also bait a lot of us to talk even more about Donald Trump. The Democrats in the media would like nothing more than for us to be talking about Trump, Trump, and more Trump. And whenever that happens, Trump likes it because he loves being the center of attention, but the Democrats like it too because it makes the election seem a little bit more like a choice as opposed to a verdict on the outcomes that they have achieved, if you want to put it that way, with unified control of Washington, D.C., There should be an up or down vote. Do you like how things are going with the Democrats in charge? Yes or no? Most Americans would say no. And the Republicans should win the election. If there's all this stuff constantly chumming the water about Trump, some of those independents out there might start to say, oh, gosh, you know, here he is again. And we sort of hadn't heard much from him and we hate what's happening with Biden. But this stuff is crazy. And I think that is what the Democrats are hoping for here. That is what Biden was doing And I just want to call it for what it is, a cynical campaign ploy. So I'm not going to go through point after point and play you audio of a speech that most people, the vast majority of people in this country, did not watch. I'm not going to rebut it point by point. That would be falling into the trap, I think, a clumsy one at that. I'm going to tell you what the point of this was. And be very transparent about that. So I didn't watch it. I do want to respond to certain things about it. I know that much has been made about the optics. And you know the Democrats and the left kind of feel like they're losing when they're out there on social media angrily arguing about optics, saying, like, it doesn't matter. If you're focusing on how it looked, you're ignoring the substance. Well, no, I'm not ignoring either thing. What I will say is when I hopped onto Twitter and Instagram shortly after the speech – It felt like 25% of the tweets and posts that I saw were that photograph, maybe you've seen it, of Biden with his two fists clenched, screaming, it looks like, with Independence Hall lit up behind him, blood red, dark in the middle of the night, with some U.S. Marines standing in the background. It was not a good look, right? It's not the look that really conveys we're the good guys in this battle over incipient authoritarianism or whatever. That's not how it read. Most Americans aren't going to watch the speech. They're not going to read the transcript. A lot of them will see those photos. And I think it was designed for a certain hardcore 
very progressive, very online audience, and it was a hit with them, not with many other people, I would venture to say. It looked creepy. He looked like a dictator. I'm not calling him a dictator. I'm saying if you just look at some of the images and the photographs, this angry man screaming, bellowing about the fascism of his opponents a few weeks before an election with members of the military required to be standing behind him and the building all lit up this deep red, it was certainly a look. I'm not sure what they were hoping to achieve with that, but my visceral reaction just to the imagery was, ugh, yikes. There's also been a dispute over the use slash exploitation of those Marines. Was that appropriate? Comes on the heels of what, like one day earlier, Biden had given this very angry partisan attacking the opposition speech. And I know the White House, just as a quick aside, they're like, oh, no, this this was an official speech. This was an official speech by the office of the president. It was not a campaign speech. He was literally out there urging people to go vote against the, against the other party that's a threat to the country. It was a campaign speech. There's no getting around it. And he gave another one recently where the Marine Band was there. And there was a report at foxnews.com that members of the Marine Band were uncomfortable being there as little props in a partisan campaign speech. So then we got it again. These two Marines are on either side of him, backed by Independence Hall with the building all lit up red. And people objected to that, including some journalists, some non-conservatives, certainly, and generally pro-democratic journalists were like, yeah, that's not really appropriate. That's a break from tradition. And boy, did the left lose their mind on those journalists for straying slightly off the partisan talking points. Like, oh, get out of here. And they would... Post photos of, you know, the mission accomplished banner and Bush. Or, you know, various presidents speaking at graduation ceremonies at the, you know, the military academies. Trump at the White House holding the convention speech at the White House. These are not the same things. Trump at the White House, using that as the backdrop, that was an outdoor speech by necessity during a pandemic. And you can argue about whether it was appropriate or not to use the backdrop. We talked about it here on the show. But it was explicitly a campaign event. It was billed as such. And there were no members of the military being forced to stand there. The other examples, presidents appear with members of the military. And in the case of George W. Bush, he was talking about a war that we were in. That was the point of the speech. Were there political implications? Obviously. But he didn't get up there. He wasn't talking about mission accomplished. We beat the Democrats. Let's go beat the commie fascist Democrats. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the war. That is not the same as a campaign speech. So I think you've got some people being willfully obtuse about that. And then all the whataboutism back to Trump as always with these people. And then there was just, to me, the total rejection on my part of Joe Biden's standing to lecture us on any of this. He campaigned to unite us, to heal the country, to get past the wounds of Trump or whatever, and not treat the other side as enemies. And he has done that not just yesterday, but many times over the course of this presidency. And it's a crying wolf scenario as well. 
like, oh, we should take you very seriously on this specific threat to the republic or whatever. And I think when you have people rejecting election results, that is very bad. The Democrats have done that themselves in various capacities multiple times, and Joe Biden has played along with it in the case, for example, of Stacey Abrams. Then there was a totally mainstream, totally acceptable election reform law passed in Georgia. And famously, Joe Biden went down to Georgia, called it worse than Jim Crow, and said you could either side with him, basically, and Martin Luther King Jr., and John Lewis and that legacy, or that of George Wallace and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis over a completely mainstream, sensible election law that was not even close to Jim Crow, how insulting, and was not even close to voter suppression because voter participation went up dramatically after it passed. So they lied about that. And then they expect us to come back and sort of sit around and nod seriously when he's making similarly demagogic points about the next thing. You can't just burn through your credibility on this stuff and shout extremism and radical and dangerous and threat. When you do that over and over again, people tune you out, including literally me last night. Oh, remember this one last year in Virginia? Cut 12. Little flashback. Extremism can come in many forms, can come in the rage of a mob driven driven to assault the Capitol. It can come in a smile and a fleece vest. That was Joe Biden campaigning for Terry McAuliffe unsuccessfully in Virginia, comparing Glenn Youngkin, a totally normie, smiling, nice, affable Republican, to the January 6th mob. He said it's just a different form of extremism. Glenn Youngkin in his fleece vest campaigning on like schools and tax cuts. And the violent mob at the Capitol is just all extremism. That's a choice that Joe Biden made. He made it then. We excoriated it. He made a choice to say what he did about Georgia. We excoriated it. Now he comes around and he wants us to listen and take seriously what he's talking about on this latest thing of dangerous extremism Get the hell out of here. Not interested. Sorry, pal. Not interested, Mr. President. One other thing on this, he conflated over and over again, actually bad and dangerous things that I agree with him are bad and dangerous with just mainstream Republican or conservative ideas. And if you're trying to make a point that certain truly extreme behavior is a cancer on the country, you can't then in the same breath be like, oh, and also (laughs) pro-lifers. Like, no. And then also try to pretend that this was a unifying speech that excluded the good ones. That's not what he was able to achieve. And now he's kind of walking some of it back already the very next day. We'll get to that audio right after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights. 
to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. I'm Guy Benson. That was President Biden last night. This angry speech in Philadelphia. He said, quote, MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Hmm. So then Peter Ducey, our colleague here, had an opportunity to shout a question at him earlier. His press team did not want him to answer the question, but he did anyway. Here's what that sounded like. Sounds like President Biden is perhaps uh, walking back a little bit the sentiment that he stated very clearly, at least reading a teleprompter last night, cut 24. Do you consider all Trump supporters to be a threat to the country? No, everyone, come on. So, no, I don't consider any Trump supporter to be a threat, even though he said pretty explicitly the opposite yesterday. I do think anyone who calls for the use of violence and fails to condemn violence when it is used, he added, to be a threat to democracy. Uh, If I miss something, please correct me. But this is a president who was still not remarked on the assassination plot against a sitting Supreme Court justice, a story that went away in the blink of an eye. Because it was inconvenient to this exact same narrative. Not a word from the president on that. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi asked about the firebombing terror campaign against pro-life clinics. She went out of her way not to condemn it. Is she a threat to democracy? He said people refusing to acknowledge an election has been won is a threat to democracy. Will Joe Biden endorse Brian Kemp in Georgia against election truther and I assume threat to democracy? Stacey Abrams, of course not, because they don't really believe a lot of this stuff. In fact, just today it was announced Chuck Schumer is spending millions of dollars to boost a dangerous MAGA Republican in a primary in New Hampshire in the Senate race there. I guess he didn't hear the speech last night. Probably did hear it. Nodded along, doesn't care because there are elections to be won after all. Total frauds. Not interested. No sale, even if some of the points might be accurate. Not from him. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's Friday. Thanks for listening to the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. And with us now, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin 8. He serves on the Armed Services Committee in the House, among others. And Congressman, great to have you back here. Always great to be with you, Guy. I believe some congratulations are in order, you and your wife. 
welcoming baby number two not long ago, right? Just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, how are you sleeping? Well, I'm sleeping better uh, than my wife, uh, who unfairly has to shoulder most of the, the burden of, of feeding the child. I'm trying to help out where I can, but I am officially not allowed to complain. And my wife has informed me of that uh, every day. So we're doing great. Uh, she's healthy, and that's all you can ask for. We're very blessed. And do you have, like, a boy and a girl remind me what, the, what your kids are? We have two girls. Okay, so he's a, a girl dad. So far, at least. Congressman Mike Gallagher, our guest. Congratulations to you guys. That's very exciting. I want to start here. Did you happen to catch the president last night and his speech? Uh, and if so, do you have any reaction to it? Uh, I did not watch it directly, uh, so I hesitate to comment in full. But I, 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 I've read some articles reacting to it. I think it's fair to say it was an intensely negative and intensely partisan speech and this this idea that you know all trump supporters are a threat to democracy which i don't think i'm sort of unfairly paraphrasing what he said but correct me if i'm i am is really it's not only um false i think it's actually dangerous for the current polarized political moment we're in and perhaps the president is cynically calculating that this is the democrats only chance of softening the blow in the midterm election and potentially keeping the Senate. But even so, it's still a dangerous road to go down. And for a president who campaigned on restoring bipartisanship, you know, a return to normalcy, you know, hey, I'm good old Joe Biden. I got friends uh, on the other side of the aisle. This just continues a trend that we've seen since his first day in office, which Mm -hmm. is to lead an intensely, intensely partisan, hyper-progressive administration. And so I would have expected more from the commander-in-chief, uh, but last night uh, he just he went further in a very bad direction. You know, it's interesting because when conservatives make the point and Republicans make the point that you just did about the unifier and Mr. Return to Normalcy, you sometimes see, and I get this from progressives and Democrats, sort of rolling their eyes being like, you guys can't complain about that because you know Trump is the opposite of all of that. And I I don't disagree. Trump was intensely divisive, intentionally so much of the time, but he didn't pretend to be anything other than that. Right. Joe Biden. We are holding Joe Biden to the standards of Joe Biden, what he told the electorate he was going to do. And obviously he is not living up to that. He's not really trying in a lot of cases to live up to that. And as I was just mentioning before the break, before we had you on, Congressman, The party also, the Democratic Party, I I just don't think that they have any credibility on this. Literally today, the day after Biden gave the speech, it's reported that uh, Chuck Schumer is spending millions of dollars to meddle in the Republican primary and the Senate primary up in New Hampshire. A real chance to beat Maggie Hassan up there. She's a rubber stamp for the Democrats and Biden. And the Republicans haven't had their primary yet. And there's a much more MAGA type candidate and someone else that is maybe more of a mainstream conservative and the Democrats are spending millions of dollars to boost exactly the kind of candidate that Joe Biden gave a whole primetime speech trying to pretend is a extremely dangerous threat to the republic itself. And, and they've done this before. They spent tens of millions of dollars this cycle promoting those exact kinds of candidates. And so like, forgive me. When I hear these warnings from President Biden and then I see the actual behavior of his party endorsed by him, 
I just I cannot take it seriously, and I think that they have not a leg to stand on. Not a leg to stand on at all. Well, quick to your, to your earlier point, uh, yeah, it, it's not like um, you know President Trump when he came down the the escalator famously or, or infamously in you know in 2016 at Trump Tower, then gave a speech about you know hope and, and unity and you know, restoring the soul of America, whereas Biden right. having campaigned on restoring the soul of America, whatever the heck that means, uh, is now just saying that Republicans are soulless and, uh, you know, should be treated effectively as second-class citizens or an active danger to democracy. So I, I agree with you on that. Now, that being said, I I would like a, a any uh, president, particularly one of, from the Republican Party, to practice the politics of addition, not subtraction, uh, not just because I think it's good for the country, but it's also an effective way of getting things done, um, and we don't have that uh, right now, certainly in, in the Biden administration. This practice that the Democrats are going all in on meddling in Republican primaries, it not only exposes them as um, hypocrites and, and partisans. I mean, be careful what you wish for here, because obviously what we saw in 2016 with Trump's election uh, was a candidate who people didn't think could win won the whole thing, right? And the Hillary Clinton campaign famously, never came to Wisconsin because they thought they had it in the bag. And then Trump won Wisconsin for the first time since 1984, the first Republican to do so since Ronald Reagan. So it's entirely possible that some of these so-called fringe candidates that they're spending money supporting could win the general election. Uh, so be careful what you wish for and uh, what you're meddling with here. And again, uh, the Democrats kind of are, are in a similar position when it comes to things like, uh, let's say, dark money, right? For years, the Democrats yes. invade against dark money. All these Republican super PACs are, you know, meddling in our elections and they're having an outsized influence on campaigns. Well, now, where is more dark money spent? It's in favor of Democratic causes oh, they love dark on money. the Democrat side of the aisle. They love it. They love it. They um, love well, – hang on. They love dark blue money is what they like. That's right. That's right. That's, that's it. E- that's exactly right. So, uh, again, this the hypocrisy is uh, – it's tough to swallow, uh, but all the more reason I think Republicans can't get complacent going into the November election. You know, I, my fear is people started celebrating a little bit too early. I still think we're going to win back the House, but we got a lot of work to do to win back uh, the Senate uh, and have a, a sizable majority in the House that will let us do the oversight and the governance we need to be doing. You mentioned Wisconsin, your state. Just a political question here. I saw a poll today that had the governor's race tied. I've seen a few polls that show the Senate race virtually tied. I know that Ron Johnson is fighting to get reelected. The polls have really underestimated his support in the past. He's down a couple points to this Democrat that they've just nominated, who is really quite radical, actually. When you look at his record and defund the police stuff and getting rid of bail, there's a lot to attack uh, in in the opponent against the opponent. Uh, with Senator Ron Johnson. As you look at that Senate race, the statewide races in your state, Senate and governor race, what's your assessment of where things stand here before Labor Day, and what should we be looking for and watching for in the next two months? Well, Wisconsin's always going to be close at the statewide level. I mean, it's a purple state. You have to really fight 
for every vote. Uh, we've also seen, I think, an intensification in recent years of a decades or two decade trend, which is an increasing rural urban divide uh, in the state. So, for example, my district, which used to be kind of the swing congressional district in the state, it was a lean Republican R plus two district when I first got elected. It's now a an, an R plus 16, a very Republican uh, district due to a few factors. But it's going to be tight no matter what. I still think Ron Johnson is going to win uh, in large part uh, because of what you laid out, which is that Mandela Barnes is an intensely, intensely flawed candidate. Uh, famously, after Kenosha, uh, the Mandela Barnes went out there and said uh, in the shooting of Jacob Blake, he said this was a vendetta carried out by the cops against the black community, wow. which is a crazy thing to say. Because here you had an individual who charged at the cops with a knife. He charged at the cops with a knife. So Mandela Barnes went out there immediately, without having, without even have the base, having the basic facts at his disposal, uh, went out there and blamed the cops. And then what happened after that? Well, Kenosha experienced horrible, horrible riots, tens of millions of dollars of damage people hurt. The thing was a total disaster. And his behavior during that moment of crisis was absolutely reprehensible. And voters are going to be reminded of that as we get closer to the election. He also has a very thin resume. Uh, he's got a lot of flaws as, as a candidate. He didn't pay taxes while, you know, lobbying to increase taxes on Wisconsin. <laughs> of course. He lied about having Lied about having a college degree. Uh, this is not a person of integrity that you would want serving in the United States Senate and certainly well outside the mainstream for someone who wants to represent a purple state. Uh, well outside the mainstream, a committed, hardcore progressive. So I still think we can win the Senate seat and the governor's race as well. It sounds like he's basically effectively anti-cop and pro-criminal. And I will see how that plays in Wisconsin in about two months couple more topics here for you, Congressman. The student loan, quote-unquote, forgiveness scheme from President Biden, I think it is, first of all, illegal. I think it's lawless. I think it is deeply unfair. I think it is bad public policy. I think it will make some of the problems even worse. Uh, I've seen some polling where it polls well. If it's sort of like a top-line question, do you support this plan? If you ask even one detail down, do you support X? These the overall favorability just plummets among Americans. I think that there is a real fairness question here. Usually Democrats like to use that word fairness as a cudgel against conservatives uh, and, you know, a little class warfare action. I think the tables could be turned pretty aggressively on this if the Republicans play their cards correctly. What are you hearing in Wisconsin? Well, I'm hearing uh, beyond the the fact that this is going to be inflationary, beyond the overall cost and beyond, I think, what are the very serious constitutional legal issues that you allude to. It's just sort of the common sense unfairness of this. Uh, the, the fact that this is a slap in the face to anyone that either didn't go to college or people that worked hard to actually pay off their student loans. This is effectively a transfer of wealth to uh, the upper middle class and upper class in some cases. I think that strikes most hardworking Wisconsinites as completely unfair. And then to get back to just sort of the constitutional issues, uh, the legal issues here, uh, even if you sort of believe this crazy convoluted argument that a law passed in the wake of 9-11, the so-called HEROES Act, somehow gives the president to the power to 
forgive student loans because of the ongoing emergency created by the pandemic, my gosh, that is such an abuse of presidential power. First of all, we are no longer in an, in a an state of emergency relative to the pandemic. The pandemic is endemic. And Congress, when it passed that law, though I was not a member of Congress in 2003, did not envision it being used as a means to do a blanket forgiveness of student loans. This is a massive, massive abuse of executive power and a continuation of the very abuse of emergency powers that the Democrats lost their minds over when Donald Trump declared an emergency on the southern border to reappropriate money that was appropriated by Congress for different purposes. I happened to vote against it at the time. I took a lot of flack from my own party. But what I said at the time is I guarantee you the Democrats are going to use this to do things that we do not like. Presidents of both parties tend to increase and abuse their power, and it's up to us in Congress to claw that power, particularly emergency power, back before we see more of this stuff. The next thing is going to be a climate emergency. There were toying. Yeah. The Biden administration is they were close. With declaring a climate emergency and using that to do any number of other things, which would be even crazier. Congressman Mike Gallagher, last question. I just want to get your reflections on one year after the debacle and national disgrace in Afghanistan. As I mentioned in your intro, you sit on the House Services Committee, the Armed Services Committee. You served your country in uniform, and we thank you for that. Uh, that was a real dark chapter and a blemish, a lot of needless losses there, including a loss of American strength and credibility. Uh, what, what are your thoughts as you think back to a year ago today and the legacy now a year hence? Well, one, the tragedy that we lost, 13 service members that didn't need to die, I I think weighs heavily on on a lot of us, particularly those of us who wore the uniform and those of us who were proud to call ourselves or are proud to call ourselves United States Marines. Uh, Second thing is is, uh, no no one's been held accountable uh, for one of the biggest foreign policy fiascos uh, of my lifetime. Uh, No one at the State Department, no one at the Defense Department, uh, you know, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, has not been held accountable. Secretary Austin, um, you know, business as usual continues. That's unacceptable. It's why we need to use a Republican majority in the House to do a serious investigation of all the failures and bad decisions leading up to the Afghanistan fiasco and hold people accountable. The third thing is I I remain concerned about the limits of so-called over-the-horizon counterterrorism operations. The Biden administration was recently uh, touting the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, as evidence that over-the-horizon counterterrorism is is workable, when in fact it proves the opposite, because this guy uh, was hobnobbing with top Taliban officials uh, when the Biden administration repeatedly assured us during their surrender in Afghanistan, don't worry, uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda are enemies, they're not going to cooperate, uh, and we can use that in order to stabilize the country. That was a lie at the time. It's an even brighter and shinier lie with one year to look back on it. So we have a lot of oversight left to be done on this issue. Yeah, and unfortunately, I would just add editorially, your point is exactly right on accountability, the total lack thereof on this disgraceful episode. And unfortunately, that is very much the pattern of behavior with this administration. There's no accountability for anything ever. It doesn't matter how humiliating the failure is. No one is ever held accountable in that administration. The only people who ever leave, apparently, are like the comm staff of Kamala Harris. Everyone else keeps their job no matter what. 
Uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable to watch. But there can be some accountability in November from the voters if they decide to show up in force and render a verdict on what we've seen for the last two years. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear cut from where I sit, but we'll see what the voters decide a couple of weeks from now. Mike Gallagher, congressman from Wisconsin, the 8th congressional district in the Badger State. Congressman, always appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thank you, sir. And we will step aside and be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, Wall Street Journal reporting that the IRS says it has accidentally exposed confidential taxpayer data on its website. Oops, there's a mistake. Maybe instead of hiring 87,000 new people and doubling the size of the agency and ramping up enforcement coming after you, I know they claim that won't be the case, but no one believes that. They shouldn't, based on their pattern of enforcement and their audits. Maybe they can like hire a few better IT people to not do this. Just a thought. Then... Totally on a separate note, another piece of breaking news just moments ago, the College Football Board of Managers has reportedly now landed on and approved a 12-team college football playoff. This new model would start in 2026 per sources. So I know a lot of college football fans, we were just chatting with Reese Davis about the state of the sport. Here with week one, a couple of really fun games last night. Uh, here's some very big news on the college football front. A lot of fans were expecting something like this to happen, an expansion from four or maybe up to eight. Well, it looks like it's going to be 12. Interesting stuff. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, another hour of the show. Bill Barr, former attorney general, has a lot to say. You want to hear that interview coming up in the next hour on The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show from D.C. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free every day on demand. Heading to New York after the show. For the big show on the TV side, Fox News Channel tomorrow and Sunday, FNC, 5 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there on the long weekend. GuyBensonShow.com, I'll just remind you, is our website here at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. Fox News alert. As we begin our middle hour, the Dow closes down significantly, down 337 points in the red. Ending at 31,318, a week closed despite a pretty good jobs report announced today for August. There were some mixed signs in there on wages, for example, wasn't great. A downward revision significantly, I read, on jobs from last month, the previous month. But all things considered, not a bad jobs report and still the market's off substantially today. In the meantime... With Bill Barr upcoming later this hour, the former attorney general, an interview that you want to hear starting in the next segment, I wanted to just highlight the latest skirmish caused by Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. He is really triggering 
some of these blue city mayors by sending a small number of illegal immigrants from Texas to their cities, these sanctuary cities that they're so proud to be sanctuary cities, New York, D.C., now Chicago. So now Lori Lightfoot has some people showing up in her city and she is really mad about it, but also sort of pretending that she's glad about it. Cut 23, 22. I'm happy to take uh, and drain Texas of all of its residents. I wouldn't want to live in a state with a governor like that. I certainly wouldn't want to live in a state um, where they are doing everything they can to strip people of their basic rights. And let's not forget about what they've done uh, to women and others who are seeking reproductive health care. So we welcome Texans um, to Chicago. And, and we'll rent the buses next time to bring them here. Great. I think Greg Abbott should invoice Lori Lightfoot for the buses bringing. They're not Texans, by the way. They are illegal immigrants from other countries. Notice how she conflates that. She makes that quick little switch. Oh, we want the Texans to come here. We want to drain Texas of all its residents. The people being bussed are illegal immigrants under open border, deeply irresponsible, weak on enforcement, or in some cases, non-existent enforcement policies of the Democratic Party. And Lori Lightfoot's like, great, bring them here. Good. She just asked for it, Governor Abbott. Send Chicago the invoice. They can't afford it. They're all in debt up to their eyeballs in the state of Illinois. But he should just try that. He could, like, serve her like a subpoena almost, serve her with the bill and see if she'll put her money where her big mouth is. I doubt it. Now, let's say they were to offer free buses for Texans to come to Illinois and live there. How many people would take them up on that? It's not a hypothetical question. We already know the answer. Guess where people are leaving in droves? Illinois. Guess where they are moving in droves? Texas. You see these city and state officials on the Democratic side, Mayor Adams in New York taking his pot shots, Mayor Bowser in D.C. taking her shots, now light-footed on the action, Newsom can't shut up out in California. These are places where people are leaving. And the horrible places, stripping everyone of their basic human rights, Florida, Texas, people are flocking to those spots. If people actually believed that human rights are being abolished in any place, you don't go there, right? Oh, this fascist hellhole. Yes, let's move there by the hundreds of thousands. It's not how it works. It is amazing how successful this political trap has been set by Governor Greg Abbott in Texas. It was a little stunt. I wasn't opposed to it. I thought it was sort of like, okay, he's making a point. I never dreamed it would have this effect to get these mayors and governors out in front of cameras saying the most imbecilic things. And it's like, you know, in-kind contributions, campaign contributions to his campaign back in Texas against Beto O'Rourke. By the way, I saw a clip of Beto earlier today in a fun little flashback. You know what he was doing two summers ago? Angrily demanding that schools remain closed in Texas, even after the data showed that would not be scientifically justifiable. He wanted the schools closed in Texas. He accused Governor Abbott of engaging in basically a genocide of the people of Texas by reopening. 
and he was dead wrong. Now he wants to be governor. I wonder if he agrees with Lori Lightfoot. Maybe he can chip in a few of his massive campaign war chest dollars to hire those buses to send Texans, quote-unquote, i.e. actually, in this case, illegal immigrants to Chicago. Maybe Beto can personally drive the bus. He'll be out of a job probably sometime. Does he have a job? Does he Has he had a job in a while, Beto O'Rourke, aside from failing and running for office unsuccessfully? I don't know. But that's the latest uh, little chest puffery by Lori Lightfoot. And I don't think she's really thought through what she's talking about. Shock of all shocks. Meanwhile, perhaps worse, the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, recently said that Republicans in New York should get out of the state and move. She's like, get out of here. She told her opponent, Lee Zeldin, to get out and move to Florida. She said of Republicans, quote, you are not New Yorkers. Which is an amazing message to send to millions of people of your constituents in your state. And Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida responded, I thought this was pitch perfect from DeSantis drawing a contrast, as he often does. Cut 23. You have the governor of New York saying all Republicans need to leave the state, just get on a bus. I mean, how absurd is that, uh, that you would say that? But it shows the mindset. If you don't believe, if you don't bow down to what they want, then somehow you're a second-class citizen. That's very dangerous uh, for a society. You know, we're a diverse society. We've got people with a lot of different views, and we're proud to have been able to, you know, have uh, enacted a big agenda in Florida, which we have strong support across the state for on all our on all our initiatives. Uh, but But you can't go down the road road of, of saying these people don't count. What would happen? I mean, how many people would be working in NYPD or the fire department if you kicked out all the Republicans from there? It's really, really crazy that people are saying stuff like this. And so, you know, in Florida, you know, we try to embrace policies, uh, you know, that, that anyone can benefit from. And, and we want people to do well, uh, regardless of, you know, how they may register you know, with a particular political party. And so we're much different than New York in that respect. And I think we're a much freer state as a result. Oh, perfectly said. Juxtapose that with Hochul and her hate, Lori Lightfoot and her shooting off at the mouth. Give me Ron DeSantis every day of the week. A-plus there from the Florida governor. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And joining us now here in studio is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General under two different presidents, author of the book One Damn Thing After Another. We interviewed him for a full hour about that a couple of months ago. You can go look up that interview. I recommend it. I also recommend the book. It is one of the best D.C. memoirs that I've ever read, One Damn Thing After Another. And, Mr. Attorney General, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Guy. Thanks for having me. There's so much happening. I want to start with last night and the president's speech in Philadelphia. I know a lot of conversation has been swirling about the optics of it, the red lighting, the Marines behind him, all of that. Then there's the substance of it, the choice to make that kind of speech as a president, especially one who ran on unity. Just curious how it struck you. I thought it was, uh, you know, not only uh, inflammatory, but it was... uh uh, almost deranged for him to to do that. Um, it was a political speech that was even hot, maybe too hot for a democratic political convention. But to give that speech in front of the American people, flanked by U.S. Marines and stuff, 
and attacking the Republican Party that way was beyond the pale. Um, and it was full of lies. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the decisive uh, shift in American politics in the last few decades has been the radical shift of the Democratic Party to the left. And there's all kinds of empirical evidence showing that the Democrats have moved far to the left and the Republicans have basically stayed where they've been for the last 30 or 50 years. On policy, sir. Yes, uh, yes, on policy, uh, which uh, you know is the most important aspect of it. And uh, it's the Democrats who are becoming increasingly intolerant and totalitarian. I mean, what are people's – what threatens people's jobs and, and livelihood these days? It's not being woke enough. It's not adhering to the democratic progressive line. Things are worse today than they were under McCarthy and, and the Red Scare. And so the people with the totalitarian temper and the uh, extreme positions – Positions that no nobody except the fringe would have embraced, in, you know, five years ago. You know, like CRT and transgenderism in the schools and so forth. You know, uh, now if you if you raise concerns about that, you're a fascist. So, I mean, I think the shift. I think the American people see really what's happened, and they recognize this is a distraction from uh, Biden's failures. I think your point can be underscored about because I think what some people would argue is the attacks on democracy or whatever he was talking about, it really goes or should go, at least from his vantage point, beyond policy, even though he conflated it, which was, I think, very dishonest, into election denial and that sort of thing. Of course, the Democrats have their own problem on that front as well. But on the policy front, the point that you just made, perhaps no one personifies that major shift more than Joe Biden. You look at Joe Biden as a U.S. senator or even as a vice president and what his positions were not that long ago, last decade, the decade before that, versus where he feels like he must be today to even be remotely viable as the leader of his party right now. And then you look at some long-serving Republican senator, right, who has been there for a long time, like Chuck Grassley, right? Right. So look at Joe Biden versus Chuck Grassley and see which one – and their voting record, which one looks markedly different today versus 15 years ago? It's not even close. That's right. That's a perfect uh, microcosm of what we're talking about. So the extremism has not come from the Republicans. And when you look at and, – and looking at policy, what, what, what are the Republicans actually saying? They're saying we're trying to restore what's great about America and here are policies. Those policies are classic Republican policies. They're, they're consistent with Reagan republicanism. Trump himself in March 2021 gave a speech at CPAC where he said, here's what Trumpism about, and he put down 10 or 12 items. They're all you know, consistent Republican positions, you know, secure borders, lower taxes and regulations to promote economic growth and so forth. Uh, but you know, what he's trying to do is take the fact that Trump himself has such a you know, bullying and, and – uh, um, bombastic style that he opens himself up to the charge that he's an autocrat and uh, and you know, he offends a lot of people. Uh, but and when he you, crosses lines too. Yeah, in cross- my opinion, he crosses lines sometimes. Right, but not. And, and, but in his administration, his policies were not semi-fascist. Right, his policies were were Republican policies. Broadly supported by the Republican Party and by many, and probably at that yeah, stage, and they by called, most they called George W. Bush 
you know, the next Hitler back right. when he was president. Sure. And they're already calling DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, worse than Trump, right? Like, right. It's, it's the same game that they play. Right. Well, this has been going on as long as I've had political consciousness, which is there's no such thing as a conservative, there, according to the media. It's always an ultra conservative. Right, ultra MAGA. Right. Right. So, so what, what you have is the, the media the, – the Democrats have never engaged in some substantive discussion since you know, Watergate at least. Uh, but it's always just saying that the other side is an extremist. We're not even going to engage with your arguments on the substance. You're an extremist. You're not in the mainstream. That game has been played a long time. But it's gotten to the point where we're not, you know, we're not called extremists. We're now called fascists or semi-fascists. And then the words lose all meaning. Of course. And by the way, it actually reminded me, sparked a thought. There was, gosh, a number of years ago now, Chuck Schumer was leading some sort of press phone call, and he didn't realize that the press was already dialed in. Mm-hmm. It was, he thought it was just the Democrats. So he's sort of giving the marching orders before he thought the journalists were there. And one of the things that Schumer admitted in that context was. I always use the word extreme. Whatever they're doing, I always call it extreme. And he obviously felt like this was a successful strategy that the journalist would be like, oh, yes, let's go along with it. One journalist decided to blow the whistle that he was actually saying this stuff. And it's like, of course, we've seen it. It's it's not a revelation for those of us paying attention, but it is sort of interesting seeing it coming from his mouth. Right. And and let's talk about violence, okay? Political violence really, I mean – started moving up, I, I would say, in 2016 election when you had people beating up Trump supporters at Trump uh, rallies and so forth. There were five or six incidents in 2016. There was a bad one in Chicago, if I recall correctly. Right. And there were, and there were some out in California yes. and some in Texas. It's Antifa. Right. And they, and they were beating up people who were wearing red hats and so forth. And no one said peep. The Democrats didn't say peep about it. I don't, I don't you know. Uh, actually, at, even at that time, I think Pelosi actually said something like, you know, violence doesn't have a place in it. In politics, I have to give her credit if I'm right about that. But, um, but anyway, that started. The Democrats were largely quiet about it. And then, of course, we had uh, the summer of 2020. Okay. Now let's – one thing about the Republicans, when violence occurs – and both parties have nuts, nuts on the extreme and people who you know, get carried away and do – engage in violence. The difference between the parties is the Republicans have instantaneously condemned it when it happens and have no com- compunction about that. Well, if it, they don't, they're hounded forever by the press. Right. But they do. And, and so uh, whenever there's violence, either side, they make clear that's beyond the pale – and uh, you know when Mitch McConnell went down into the well and McCarthy and so forth right after January 6th, you know, they were extremely uh, firm on, on that point. The Democrats by and large coddle violence, don't say anything about it. And I remember my hearing on July 28th, I think it was 2020, before the, you know, Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee where I said, won't anyone here condemn the fact that people are – Night after night, attacking a federal courthouse, trying to burn it down, attacking a small group of U.S. marshals who are trying to protect it, putting lasers in their eyes and stuff like that. Will anyone say that's wrong? And there's crickets. No one on – no Democrat said anything, refused to condemn. They all refused to condemn it. That's the difference between the parties on the, on the question of violence. And as we've mentioned on this show multiple times, Speaker Pelosi, whom you invoked a moment right. ago, 
she was asked a few weeks ago to condemn these series of terrorist bombings against pro-life centers, and she explicitly refused to do it. Right. She, in fact, defended abortion rights and said she will take no more questions beyond that on the subject. Right. Couldn't even lift a finger to pretend to be against firebombing. That's, that's very much in the character of the democratic reaction to violence. So – you know, I think I think uh, the American people sh- shouldn't be fooled. I mean, the, the party that has moved to the extreme, the party that's conducting itself in an intemperate and and totalitarian manner, uh, and the party that coddles people who engage in violence is the Democratic Party. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, my guest here in studio on the Guy Benson Show. More right after this. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for listening. With me here in studio is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, author of One Damn Thing After Another. And Mr. Attorney General, I do want to ask you about this whole Mar-a-Lago raid and the aftermath that we're sort of sifting through every single day. There are more people who seem to be coming out, experts and legal analysts, who are convinced in a way that they weren't before that the DOJ may in fact be moving toward an indictment of the former president. Reading between the lines, knowing everything that you know and your vast wealth of experience, you served as attorney general twice under two different presidents. What do you make of this whole episode broadly? Do you think that there's a real risk here that President Trump might get indicted? Yes, I I do think there's a risk. As I see it, there are sort of three questions. The first – before we get to the three questions, let me say that I think as a legal matter, the search was a valid search, okay? But the first question is, even if it was a valid – was it was a search, was it a smart thing to do? Was it a reasonable thing to do? The second question is, is there technically a case uh, that could be made? And then the third is, even if a case could be made against Trump um, – for illegally retaining the documents and deceiving the government, um, would it be prudent to bring it under the current circumstances given that he's a former president, given the state of the nation? Those are the three questions. Um, it's looking more and more like uh, this, uh, that the case for justifying the search can be made. I, I was very reluctant to get out and talk about this until I knew more about the I facts. I remember. I texted you <laughs> yeah. and you called me immediately. You said, please don't put me on the air. We yeah. don't know anything yet. But now yeah. we know more. Yeah. As we, as we know more, it looks like you know, this thing was not – it doesn't appear to me that this thing was driven by some you know, rogue desire to just get the president at any cost. It was driven by the fact that a lot of classified information – had been taken, missing. A lot of government documents had been taken. People talk, say it's an unprecedented search. Well, it's also unprecedented for a pre- president to waltz off with you know scores of boxes, including cl- highly classified information. So they were. It seems to me it was driven by the desire primarily to figure out what that classified information was, how sensitive it was, and get a hold of it. That's what the driver here was. And it looks to me like they spent a year jawboning him without success. 
and then and then when they purported to voluntarily cooperate, they you know they only gave a small fraction of what they had. Then they said they had given everything, and then but that was know. actually after the subpoena. So then they get some information suggesting that wasn't everything. Right. So they go and get a subpoena, and they subpoenaed him. Then in in June they are given more, and that also turns out to be a, a relatively small fraction of what was. There. And they appear to have gotten more information from other witnesses, probably at Mar-a-Lago, that there was some hanky-panky potentially going on there. And so that is what prompted the search. And I'm not sure what the objection to that is. At some point, they have to get the documents. They took almost two years to do it. And they did it only after they got some information about, about uh, obstructive activities. And in terms of the secrecy, you know, I don't think that these documents are Russiagate documents. I think they're more likely to be, uh, you know, run the gamut of uh, highly sensitive information relating to foreign policy and intelligence collection and other things like that. So at the end of the day, I said, look, we really have to wait to see two things before, before reaching a final judgment, which is what kind of information was this? And, and second, how how good is the information that the department probably has gotten out of Mar-a-Lago about deception? Was there active deception? Was the president involved in that? Uh, and how good is that information? And I feel that it, it, that they won't prosecute him unless they have very strong evidence. And if they do have strong evidence, I have, I sort of agree with Andy McCarthy at this point that they may very well move ahead. Would that be, from a prudential judgment standpoint and a recent history standpoint, the right call to make? Because what I keep coming back to is I'm not interested, and I said this yesterday, I'm not interested in defending Trump on having these documents and he and his team or someone involved misleading the government about having more documents and all of that. I think it was reckless and bad and potentially a violation of the law. I also remember Hillary Clinton engaged in egregiously irresponsible, reckless behavior in a very similar vein. She's not a former president. She was secretary of state at the time, and they made a choice not to prosecute her despite destroying evidence, lying about it and all that kind of stuff. It just feels like to me right now to say we are going to prosecute this guy when we didn't prosecute her, I think that would not sit well with a lot of people and it would – further the argument, whether you agree or disagree, that there are two standards of justice in this country, one for people on the right, one for people on the left, and it's all politicized. I have trouble pushing back against that. Well, I agree that they're going to have to be able to distinguish it very clearly from the Hillary Clinton situation. Now, you know, uh, people have to remember that she she left being uh, – Secretary of State six years before I arrived at the Department of Justice and the people who made the call on that case were initially the uh, the Obama Justice Department. Right. And uh, I can't say that was a wrong call given uh, the quality of the evidence and, and I also think that some – the way they conducted the investigation was very deferential to her and – It was crazy yeah, what they let they her grant, They granted a lot of immunity. In exchange and, for basically nothing. And, yeah. Right. And, which means that once those people are granted immunity, it's very hard to you know to get more information out mm-hmm. of them. So the case was pretty well uh, – uh, well, 
it, it was a it was a spent <laughs> case at that point, and it was very hard to come in later and do anything, especially since the statute of limitations had run on most of that stuff. So, uh, but I agree that the, you know I think this shows the double standard, and I think there is a double standard. Uh, I think uh, some of it is conscious among with some people, and some is unconscious, but. Uh, I think they tend they certainly have a lot of antipathy toward Trump and they'll pursue him much more aggressively. But I think the Republicans are making a big mistake if they feel they have to continue to defend the indefensible, you know, like January 6th and making, you know, that made the Republican that hurt the Republican party and people shouldn't be defending what happened there. And I feel the same about this. I also feel that, you know, Trump and I said in my book you know, Trump was more sinned against than sinning at, during during his president before the election of 2020, but that doesn't give him license to go out and do whatever you know he wants to do, do bad things himself and get away with it, and say, well, there's a double standard. You know, I mean, these people sinned against me, and then I, you know, why can't I go out and? Right, do that's bad not things? that's not a defense on the merits, right? It, but it is a relative point. Yes. about what the standards are. And I think, at least in my mind, I want to separate those two issues out. Right. I want to come back because you said you arrived, what, six years after the Hillary stuff all went down. Without getting into specifics that you might not be able to, just looking at this from a big picture, something that you realize could be politically explosive lands on your desk as attorney general. There's an election coming up or maybe not. What is the, in your mind, the appropriate process for how to handle that in a political environment like this. What is the right way to do it? What's the wrong way to do it? What do you make of the job Merrick Garland has been doing on this particular saga? So as I say, I think the way I approach these kinds of cases was to say, first of all, uh, is there a case to be made? That is, do we have enough evidence to prove the case? that we feel we would prevail beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed a crime. That's step one. And uh, in that, you know, I got people who were experienced prosecutors who I assessed were, were not partisan either way, were very professional, uh, spent a lot of time going back over the case and so forth. And they made their recommendation as to the the evidence and all the problems that would arise and the difficulties of actually trying to prove things. And people have to remember, for example, that this email system was was designed and intended for non-classified stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm aware of some of the classified stuff that went over it. Uh, and uh, you know, the president at that time, it, it, the president went back and forth on this. You know, at some points he said to me, didn't. Before I took the job, he said he didn't think Hillary Clinton should be prosecuted because we'd look like a banana republic and so forth. And then as people continued to attack him, he took a more severe uh, position. But uh, you know, there were times where he publicly would call for it based on the fact that there was like a little C in a parentheses and by a paragraph on mm -hmm. something that was centered that meant confidential. So he was applying a very strict standard like if there's any classified information – you should indict. You know that's what he was, his public posture was. Same on Comey. So, I would just say that the standard he was taking publicly at that point would mean that he would be indicted today. Mm -hmm. uh, and but she was not. She was not uh, because 
at the end of the day, you have to show a certain intent. And uh, and uh, See, my my theory of the intent was setting up a private server that you weren't allowed to have, sending classified information on it, deleting all of it, and then lying that there was ever classified stuff. Right. To me, that is mens rea. We're now arguing about something that was right. you know years well, ago. I, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how you think through the political implications sometimes of this stuff. Like what effect it would have okay. on the country. So I was going to say, so it was not a clean. My assess, my my view of it was that it was not a particularly uh, – uh, uh, I'm not sure we, we would have met the first standard. But again, I came in six years later and a lot of the evidence was already taken, locked in. People were locked into various positions. People had been given immunity. So I'm not, I, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't as clean as a lot of people on the outside like to think, oh, you know, clearly she wrote the law. But as I said, the next step is then say, okay, is this the kind of case we should prosecute? Should. Should. Right. This is discretion. Right. This is discretion, exercise of discretion. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had to think about the precedent it would set. Uh, the chilling effect it would have uh, down the road on, on you know, certain legitimate conduct uh, and also what it would do to the body politic essentially uh, and what it would do to you know, looking ahead and trying to get things done uh, in the present administration. So you, you consider all of that as to whether or not it, as a prudential matter it's a wise thing to do. There are a few more topics I want to get to. We'll do that next with former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. My guest here in studio is Bill Barr, the former U.S. Attorney General. His book is One Damn Thing After Another, which I think is just terrific. And we've covered a lot. We've covered already the president's speech last night which Attorney General Barr called inflammatory and deranged and full of lies. You can go back and hear that on the podcast if you missed it. We also talked about the Mar-a-Lago raid and the DOJ process here and a possible indictment of former President Trump. Now I want to turn to a few other unrelated topics, the border crisis, the fentanyl crisis, crime. These are things that you wrote about in your book, One Damn Thing After Another, didn't get as much attention for some reason right. as, as all the Trump stuff, which is more juicy to the press. But these crises continue. Mm-hmm. They are in some ways worse than ever. And I'm curious, when you hear the administration come out basically day after day and insist the border is closed and secure, I mean, is that – to me, it's just insulting. But it's their job to enforce the law. They're making a choice not to. Does that fall beyond – any sort of appropriate discretion, to use the word that we were talking about a moment ago. Oh, yeah. That's not – to me, that that is not a question of uh, prosecutorial discretion. I, the, the, at some point, you have to draw the line between making individual determinations in specific cases and saying, you know, this case doesn't make sense to bring or, you know, the, the adverse consequences of bringing this case outweigh any benefit of bringing the case. Uh, and then taking a whole swath of law, a whole area of law, and just say we're we're just not going to enforce this whole area, like of a law. non-enforcement right. policy, right? 
And uh, that, that I don't feel is legitimate exercise. And finally, President Biden's announcement that he is going to, quote unquote, forgive $10,000 worth of uh, student loan debt to a certain swath of Americans, a small group of Americans, I should point out. Uh, I know that there are plans to challenge that in court. I've seen even some of the defenders of the policy admitting that they think it's probably illegal yeah. and wouldn't withstand scrutiny. Do you think that was a lawless action? Absolutely. I think it was clearly illegal. I think the statutes, the statute that they rely on, the HEROES Act, which was passed basically, the, the driver of that statute was so that when troops go overseas to serve and fight in the, the war against terrorism at that point, 2003, and in Iraq and Afghanistan, that you know their loans were paused, right? Paused for, for people to go into battle uh, and, and so forth. Now, uh, the other thing that's very clear under that statute, it was expanded to uh, uh, national emergencies, but like war. But the, the key thing there is what the what the secretary is allowed to do is make sure the person is no worse off as a result of the emergency, that, and to try to uh, to relieve. Any extra burden that the person that the that the emergency puts on the, the borrower, which means pause the loan during the emergency, because if you forgive the loan, you're putting them in, in a better position than mm -hmm. they were in. You're not keeping them, um, you know, you're you're not preventing them from being hurt further. You are putting them in a better position than they would have been. So. Wiping out the loan goes beyond the plain meaning of the statute. The statute says it has to be necessary uh, to protect them from the uh, any effect that the emergency has had. And that you can deal with by stretching out the loan. Today, 2000, you know, where we are today, COVID, this was done on the basis of COVID. You know, people have their jobs back. They're making income again. If anything, there's a labor shortage in the United States. People have had time to catch up. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that just eliminating the loans addresses any impact that COVID had on these individuals. And it's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars. And the power of the person with Congress, this was right. not what Congress passed. And so, you know, we're already seeing, I saw Washington Post journalists saying, well, imagine telling all these people, the beneficiaries, that all of a sudden it's going away. What a politically toxic thing it will be for the Republicans, sort of just rooting for that political interest. And of course, there's another side to that, which is forcing a bunch of people who've done the right thing or didn't ever go to college right. to pay you know, for lawyers and doctors to have part of their loans forgiven because the Democrats have some you know, election year scheme that they want to throw out there. Right. We've got to leave it there for now. Always enjoy these conversations with Bill Barr former U.S. Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush and then under President Trump as well. His book is One Damn Thing After Another, which I strongly recommend. It is great to see you, Bill. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. And the final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up straight after this. Julie Banderas joins us next.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour, happy Friday on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson from the Tony Snow Studios in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. I'll be co-hosting The Big Show Saturday and Sunday on Fox News Channel from New York. Heading up there tonight. See you at 5 p.m. Eastern, FNC, tomorrow and the next day. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. I might have one or two myself in the city this weekend. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You should really check them out. If you haven't tried already, and if you're 21 plus, of course, TheLongDrink.com as they expand 40 plus states by popular demand TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Well, with us now is Julie Banderas, joining from the worldwide headquarters of Fox News in New York and our studios up there. She is a Fox News Channel anchor at Julie Banderas on Twitter. And Julie, great to have you back. It's so good to be here, Guy. And I love to hear your voice. I hope to next time see you in person, though. I'm glad you're coming. That would into be the much city. better. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I won't be here, though, unfortunately, but I, I, I want to see you in person next time. Let's do that. Let's like get drinks or something. Oh, absolutely. I want to have that drink you just sponsored. It sounds delicious. The long delicious. drink. Yeah, I give will me the treat you drink. to a long drink. Let's have you a long like drink. It. Okay, good. I am willing to bet. I will place the bet of the entire bar tab <laughs> that you will like the long drink. I think I will. And I think your sponsor <laughs> should pay double for this because now we're actually turning this into a segment, aren't we? <laughs> into content. Yes, into content. But the content that we want to help promote today, yeah. let's just start here. Very exciting for you. You're out with a new book. It's a children's book yeah. called Fiona's Fantastical Fort. Before we get into the backdrop of the book and what caused you to write it and this publisher that you're working with, just give our audience, if they have young kids or grandkids or you know nieces and nephews, someone in their life with young kids, what is Fiona's Fantastical Fort in a nutshell? In a nutshell, it's a story about a little girl, and it teaches children in a fun way how to persevere. Like when things get tough, and this is what I have always taught my children since they were born, when things get tough, you must persevere. So perseverance is the theme, and it's about a little girl who plays outdoors. Remember when we used to play outdoors, by the way? I think more children (laughs) need to spend more time outside and off their iPads. So this little girl does, because on Freedom Island, which is a series of books that Brave Books puts out, it's a Christian conservative book publishing company. They have a monthly subscription. You can either buy my book individually or you can subscribe. You get a book every month. It's not just a book. There's stories. It's an adventure. There's interactive, fun things to do in the book and different uh, quotes and games and things that kids can do at home to actually get involved. But Fiona's a little girl who lives on Freedom Island. She's a legend on Freedom Island, one of the most popular characters in the Brave Book series. And she goes out and she wants to build a fort. Now, who here hasn't built a fort or built some sort of thing out of your hands, out of your imagination? 
imagination. She uses her imagination, or, tries or, to impress uh, her friends. Pillows, right? Or couch pillows, pillows is a big or one. blankets, yep. right? Like yes. indoor forts when you would take your That's parents' right. comforters and blankets and pillows, like my kids often do, and then they never put it all away. And then I walk into my living room and it looks like a bomb has gone off. So she takes sticks and different things from the outside, from the outdoors, and builds a fort. It's never good enough, never impresses her friends, and she doesn't let them get her down. So she continues and per- perseveres. And at the very end, she literally, in her wild imagination, builds a mansion. And it's just a beautiful ending to a story about a little girl who doesn't allow those surrounding her to bring her down. And she perseveres. And in the end, everyone's so impressed and gives her all this praise and wants to be her friend and thinks she's so cool because that kind of confidence is what attracts people people to you. And that's what I teach my children all the time. You know, if somebody brings you down, don't let them bring you down. And you know, the whole sticks and stones may break my bones. That's, that is an old theory. But the bottom line is, you know, you just constantly have to know that you can do better and do not stop and do not quit until you reach your goals. And that's the, you know, that's the lifelong story that I've been First teaching of all, my I kids. Feel, I feel like we needed a spoiler alert on the ending there. Now, like this, the ending has been revealed by Julie Banderas, but I think it's the journey. <laughs> it's the journey that matters here. The illustrations look great, by the way. Yeah, they're very cute. I love the illustrations. My kids loved the illustrations. And I didn't give away the entire ending because there is a little bit of a twist at the end. Um, But, yeah, the illustrations are so cool. And, you know, my kids, they're ages 6, 9, and 12. And even my 12-year-old is really into it. You know, the target audience for their books are somewhere between 4 and 10, 11. Um, But my kids, their favorite part at first before I read the book, actually, were just the pictures because they're so cool. And then once I started reading the story, my kids got mad at me the other night because I started to read it to them. And then I was like, no, 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 it's past your bedtime you go to go to bed i'll finish it tomorrow i've already read it twice and they still want me to repeatedly read it to them which is a good sign that they love it so the book is called fiona's fantastical ford it's for kids it's published by brave books now you mentioned that is a christian conservative publisher they bill themselves as anti-woke yes so how did you end up working with them and more importantly If it's coming from this publisher, can people buy the book in an average bookstore or do they have to go somewhere specific? You have to go to bravebooks.com, bravebooks.com, okay? And then if you go on there, you have the option to become a subscribing member where every single month you get a package in the mail and the books come with stickers and a map and, like, it's really, really cool. It's called Freedom Island, which I love. Um so you go to bravebooks.com and you can order it online. It is not on Amazon. It's not on any other websites. This is more of like a private children moral value building company. So, yes, that's anti-woke. And the 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 CEO, um, in fact, was in the career of ophthalmology. And when it came down to, you know, this woke philosophy that we're getting jammed down our kids' throats, uh, specifically about bringing the word sex and anything sex-based or gender-based in into the classroom, that is actually what prompted him to leave the ophthalmology business and actually start this business. So he started it during the pandemic and it's been doing really well. And I think a lot of parents and like myself, I have been railing against this whole woke philosophy in schools, which we're going to talk about later today, which is ironic that you have that story in because now that it's back to school, a lot of parents, unless your kids are in Catholic schools, your, 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 your arms, your hands are tied when it comes to the sort of stuff that your children are being taught. And that is a huge, huge pet peeve for me. So as a mom, as a parent, I finally said, okay, fine, I would like to get together with Brave Books, and I want to write a book that actually teaches our children the old school ideologies, the moral, the values that I instill in my children, the pro-American sentiment that you do not see in our kids' school books anymore. In fact, they're teaching the opposite, and it makes me sick. And in this case, 
the theme is perseverance, as yeah. you mentioned, and this is something that my dad drilled into us as kids to the mm-hmm. point that it drove us crazy. He would start making the P sound, and we wanted to go running. He's like, what's the word? And we're like, no oh, way. persevere. But it's an important value, and I think that in a lot of ways we live in an era of instant gratification, and if people don't get exactly what they want immediately, they sort of move on or they consider it a failure or they blame other people, and – I don't think that's a good way or healthy way to really live your life. And, you know, I'll admit my parents are right about that one. And I think it's important to teach that value to kids. And that's what you're trying to do here. Is there something about perseverance in your life, in your story, in your career that maybe inspired this? Totally. And that's so crazy. And I love to hear that your dad used to use the word perseverance. I was the exact same way, except my dad chose another word, and that was tenacity. And I get chills just talking about it. He's no longer with us. But my father, who had Parkinson's and struggled for many, many years. I mean, I remember him becoming sick way back when I was in fifth grade. So I had to watch him struggle as a CEO and the leader of this very large company called Consolidated Precast. It was built in, uh, based in Connecticut. He built much of New York City, Boston, and Connecticut. Um, the Holocaust Museum here, the Jewish Memorial Museum down in downtown, was actually his last project in the Bellevue uh, Hospital here in the city. So really very successful, right? And for half my life, if not more, I mean, since I was in fifth grade, he struggled. I mean, really struggled. He had Parkinson's. He had a heart attack when I was 10, but yet he still did so amazingly well successfully on the business side of things. And he always taught us tenacity, tenacity, no matter whether his Parkinson's had him frozen and he couldn't walk or he was on his boat and he couldn't get down in the engine room and fix things the way he used to love. He would have my sister get down there and be his hands and do the work for him. He didn't hire a mechanic. He did it himself. That is kind of the background that I came from. So tenacity, perseverance, whatever you want to call it. Right. Stick-to-itiveness. Um, absolutely. I mean, I just never give up. And that was my dad. And so I guess you got the same thing. So perseverance, when they came up to me and we kind of brainstormed different themes and they said the word perseverance, I was like, oh my God, you're kidding. That's like my, that's my, strong, my biggest passion in life and now as a parent. How have you applied that in your life as an adult? Because you were taught it as a kid. You're teaching it to your kids. Yeah. Are there examples in oh, yeah. your career that you're comfortable talking oh, about, maybe, or, or your life, where you're like, this is where it actually helped me, and I put yeah. it into practice? Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm comfortable talking about just about anything. In fact, <laughs> everything. I, I have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, when it comes to this career, absolutely. I mean, when you get into television news, and I'm of the old school, okay? I come from a broadcast journalism background where you start in very small markets making very little money, and everybody telling you, no, you're never going to make it. Um, you're never going to make money. You're never going to be a success. I started in a tiny market, and I was terrible, by the way. Um, my nickname was Stumbly as a local news anchor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, WHSV, um, Shenandoah Valley. So I, I can tell you it, it, it took Stumbly a long Julie. time. Oh I gosh. swear to God, my, my, my coworkers at the time behind my back, my nickname was Stumbly. Then when we, we became friends and they realized I didn't take myself too seriously even back then, uh, they told me my nickname. And I was like, wow. you're absolutely right. I sucked. <laughs> so, um, but you know, and then when I finally got to New York City many, many years later, you know, when social media came around, back then we didn't have social media, right? Well, once yep. social media came, that's even harder, right? Because then you read all this hate on the internet and all these people that are saying all these terrible things to you, and you just have to grow a thicker skin. And I have the thickest skin, I, I believe, in the business. Um, and that's something I instill in my children as well. 
is just being, you know, constantly knocked down and not letting people knock you down and just getting right back up. And honestly, if, if I read something negative, I actually laugh about it now. So it doesn't affect me in one way or the other. In fact, it, 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 it strengthens me, I would say. Julie Banderas, our guest, Fox News anchor. Her new book for kids is Fiona's Fantastical Fort, bravebooks.com. And you mentioned we were talking about the wokery, and you yeah. referenced a story that I know is here on the rundown. Yeah. There's a group of parents and teachers in Virginia suing a public school district on and over their pronoun policy. Yeah. And there was another story relatedly that I just saw in the news the other day where – a teacher actually won a lawsuit judgment because the school was trying to force the teacher to use one set of pronouns for a kid in class and then different set of pronouns with the kid's parents because the kid didn't want the parents to know. And this person was accused of misgendering the child because they refused to go down that route. Yep. You know, I wonder what you make of this because I'll just say this, Julie, and I don't know what your position is on some of this. What I do know is through – Our friendship and through your friendship with some of our colleagues here at Fox, I know that you are a huge outspoken ally of the LGBTQ community. You just are. And it's something that we appreciate and we see it and we notice it. I also think that sometimes – and I would put myself generally in that category too – Sometimes you see things, you're like, well, hang on, I I actually don't agree with that, and it it annoys me when I feel like I am being told that I have to be like a loyal gay person to defend or at least ignore some of this craziness where stuff has gone too far. And I would say this falls into that category for me. What about you? It absolutely does, and you're absolutely right because I I could not be more supportive of the LGBTQ community. My sister is gay. She's married. She just had her second child uh, through IVF. Uh, I mean, I – and I've always been this way, always, always. But when it comes to parenting, that is a whole different ball of wax. And that is something that you are not to teach children until they become of age. And I'm not talking about bisexuality and transsexuality, sexuality in general. OK, so forget all the, the titles and the pronouns, which are so out of control. But the fact yes. that our children are being taught about sex, period, I don't care in what form is absolutely un. Acceptable, And it's now being introduced in some public schools. And thank God my kids go to Catholic school and they have since they were three. But I feel for a lot of the parents out there that, you know, when you're in first grade, the word sex should never be used. Never. In fact, I don't even use the sex when I'm referring to female or male. I say gender. Um, And as far as, you know, gender identity. Oh, and then this law and these parents and teachers in Virginia that are suing Harrisonburg City Public Schools. I lived in Harrisonburg, Virginia, by the way. That's actually where I used to work. It's a pretty conservative uh, community, and I am so shocked that there would actually be some kind of policy that would prevent teachers from informing kids' parents that their child is identifying or going by some sort of gender in the classroom, in other words, if my child is at school and everyone and their friends most likely, because a lot of this is peer pressure, are now identifying my child as transgender or pansexual, which is something I just learned about recently, which is Or whatever absurd. it is, right? And I, think I ought I to think... know about it. I'm the freaking parent. You have no right, right to keep that from me. No right and at to... all. And it disgusts me that, parent, that teachers and educators actually think they have more of a say in my child's learning and what goes into their tiny little you know, brains than myself as their parent who actually brought them into this world. Right. Formative brains. And they're your kids, Formative not their brains. kids. Right. And I think as a policy, it's especially offensive building a wall 
between parents Heck and the no. school nope. as an official policy. So you and I are on the same page on no. that one. No. Our guest is Stumbly Banderas. <laughs> Just kidding. Julie Banderas <laughs> of Fox News. Her new book is Fiona's Fantastical Fort. Go to bravebooks.com for more. Julie, always enjoy it. Have a great holiday weekend. I love you, Guy. Have a great weekend. Have some good shows, and I'll see you soon. Appreciate it. And the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. So yesterday during this exact same segment, 24 hours ago, we did a pumpkin spice update where I granted permission to producer Christine to go and get some pumpkin spice whatever because at least it's September. It's not really fall yet, but it's less embarrassing than doing so in July or August. And Christine was extremely grateful, extremely grateful for that permission. And in fact, she went out immediately today and got herself a pumpkin spice, I think, latte at Starbucks. And Christine, you texted the group, it seems as though you are one and done on this. Why? This was a very, very sad guy. So yes, I was so happy. I finally got permission from Guy Benson. So I went today. Cookie was so happy. I was practically skipping into Starbucks in New York City. I proudly ordered my PSL, just a tall, because there's a lot of calories and a lot of sugar in them. And I waited. And then the lady... um, And by the way, the tall is their small. Correct. Which that's always annoyed me. But anyway, go on. My husband refused, by the way, to say tall, grande, or vente. When he goes in there, he'll say, I'll have a small, I'll have a medium. I'm like, Bobby, that's not how to order. But I support I, that. They they know what he's talking about. That's what he and, and these names are ridiculous, but please, continue. Oh. Then the lady said, um, okay, that will be $7.85. And For I a almost, small pumpkin spice latte. Almost $8, Christine. What was it, like a dollar a sip? I'm not sure what happened here, but... I can't pay that. As much as I am a lover of pumpkin, I'm going to have to find somewhere else that has delicious Mm. pumpkin coffee because there's no way I can keep paying that. One and done. And you wasted it in September. You didn't even wait until it was sweater weather, all cozy, a little crisp in the air, a little chill in the air. You blew it in a hot day in New York City in September. And I hope you think about these choices. That's all I can say. Guy Benson Show returns after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Oh, we are chugging toward the weekend together on the Guy Benson Show here in the happy hour. Earlier in today's program, in the first hour, we caught up with Mike Gallagher, U.S. Congressman from Wisconsin, District 8 up there. A wide-ranging conversation with the congressman, as usual. Here's a little bit of that discussion back and forth. Listen. Did you happen to catch the president last night and his speech? Uh, And if so, do you have any reaction to it? Uh, I did not watch it directly, uh, so I hesitate to comment in full, but I've read some articles reacting to it. I think it's fair to say it was an intensely negative and intensely partisan speech. And this this idea that, you know, all Trump supporters are a threat to democracy, which I don't think I'm sort of unfairly paraphrasing what he said, but correct me if I am, 
is really it's not only um, false. I think it's actually dangerous for the current polarized political moment we're in. And perhaps the president is cynically calculating that this is the Democrats only chance of softening the blow in the midterm election and potentially keeping the Senate. But even so, it's still a dangerous road to go down. And for a president who campaigned on restoring bipartisanship, you know, a return to normalcy, you know, hey, I'm good old Joe Biden. I got friends uh, on the other side of the aisle. This just continues a trend that we've seen since his first day in office, which Mm -hmm. is to lead an intensely, intensely partisan, hyper-progressive administration. And so I would have expected more from the commander-in-chief, but last night uh, he just – he went further in a very bad direction. Forgive me when I hear these warnings from President Biden and then I see the actual behavior of his party endorsed by him. I just – I cannot take it seriously and I think that they have not a leg to stand on. Not a leg to stand on at all. Well, quick to your, to your earlier point. Uh, yeah, it, it's not like, um, you know, President Trump, when he came down the, the escalator famously or, or infamously in, you know, in 2016 at Trump Tower, then gave a speech about, you know, hope and, and unity and, you know, restoring the soul of America. Whereas Biden, right. having campaigned on restoring the soul of America, whatever the heck that means, uh, is now just saying that Republicans are soulless and, uh you know, should be treated effectively as second-class citizens or an active danger to democracy. So I, I agree with you on that. Now, that being said, I, I would like a, a, any uh, president, particularly one of, from the Republican Party, to practice the politics of addition, not subtraction, uh, not just because I think it's good for the country, but it's also an effective way of getting things done. Um, and we don't have that uh, right now, certainly in, in the Biden administration. My full interview with Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, a Republican, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also on the free podcast every day on demand, free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when we come back, as promised, the home stretch, we told you yesterday, producer Christine is very curious about my vacation that I returned from on Wednesday. Over in Europe, we were in Ireland, we were in Greece. Christine is bursting with questions. We didn't get to any of them yesterday. We will change that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday, almost at the weekend here together. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free. Every single day. Bonus Benson on the weekends included. That's seven days a week. Also, I'll be co-hosting The Big Show Saturday and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there or maybe set your DVR if you're out there having fun on your long weekend. Well, I'm going to be working the long weekend because I just got back from a vacation. So it's back to the grindstone for me. But the vacation was very cool. Started in the U.K. We talked about that. I did the show from London for a few days. Then went to Ireland for a football game. We discussed that at some length with Reese Davis of ESPN yesterday. That was fun. There were some other things that we did in Ireland that it was a new experience for me. I'd never been to that country. And then back to Greece, where I actually had been kind of recently, but I was invited to Kennedy's 50th birthday party. And how can you say no to that? And just had a blast. So Christine has been like coming out of her skin to ask questions about all of it. She was very restrained, barely texted me while I was on the vacation. 
But I know, Christine, you have questions, and I am here to answer them to the best of my ability in the time that we have remaining. Go. Ah, welcome back, laddie. Did you have a good trip? Is it possible to end the show right now? Can we, like, play Irish music for the next 10 minutes or whatever it is? I, I, I can't handle that. All right, all right, all right. I, you're lucky I don't have a Greek accent. I tried. I looked up my big fat Greek wedding. I was trying to put some things together. It just wasn't working. So. Yeah, no, that, that someone would hear that and it would become my big fat Greek HR complaint. <laughs> That, that's what would happen there. <laughs> so that's for the best. Let's just avoid the accents altogether. Okay. Um, and, and you can ask the questions in your very normal Jersey girl accent. Oh, okay. Um, so let's start in Ireland. How was the food? Because I've heard two different things. I've heard it, the best steak you will ever have is in Ireland. But I also have heard the food is mm, meh. You don't go there for the food. You go there for the views. I don't think you go to Ireland for the food. You might go to Ireland for the drinks, and they have a lot of them. I will say we actually had several very good meals. Now, that took some, you know, research. So we picked restaurants very specifically in order to have a good culinary experience at a few of the restaurants, including a very cool one, probably my favorite meal of the trip, at least of the U.K. and then Ireland leg. We stayed at a hotel in the west of Ireland in a town called Galway. We drove all the way across the country from Dublin. This was Adam had flown in that day, and we had two friends with us, Mitch and Carolyn. What a blast with them. So we went across the country. They call it the Emerald Isle for good reason. Just greenery, lush green colors everywhere you look. It is so beautiful. And we got to this hotel, which is in an old, like, castle and abbey. In fact, the word Abbey is in the name of this hotel or resort, and it was right on a golf course. They had their golf course. We went biking around the golf course through the mist. It was the only day of somewhat inclement weather that we had, almost miraculously there. But it was kind of, I don't know, romantic, biking through slight rain in Ireland. It was just so cool. And on the premises of this hotel, they have, I think it's four train cars of the original Orient Express. So these ornate train cars from yesteryear. And they have converted these train cars into a restaurant. And you make your reservation. They give you a train ticket when you board. And you sit at the little sort of tables that used to be just in the dining car. It was really cool. We had some great wine. We ate a great meal. There were a few other Northwestern fans that said hello to us on this train that doesn't go anywhere. It just sits there as a restaurant. And there was a novelty to it, but it was also kind of classy and it felt like a throwback. That was really cool. That put sort of the exclamation point on a day that was already pretty amazing. And then the next day was the Cliffs of Moher, which was another drive further south along the West Coast. And I'm sure you've seen those photos, Christine, the famous cliffs on the coast of Ireland. Oh, yeah. Totally worth it. Absolutely breathtaking. We took far too many photographs and just had a great time. And there were just cows. There were like cows grazing right there on one side in these beautiful meadows and pastures. Then you turn around and there's the ocean and these dramatic cliffs and this old stone tower overlooking one of them. It was just fantastic. And the Irish people were so nice. What about the sheep? 
I read a fact that says there are more. They sheep. were also very nice. There are more sheep <laughs> than were... people in Ireland. A lot of sheep. Uh, I think the most sheep per person per capita country might be New Zealand, which is also a beautiful place with lovely people. But it was. Have you been to Ireland, Christine? I have not, but I, I mean, with this accent, I should be over there. Yeah, I mean, you might get hate crimed actually for, and it might be justified. You could get some like jury nullification. They would play a clip of this show of the accent at the trial of your killer, <laughs> and they would be like, "Not guilty, Your Honor." I have so many more Ireland questions. We might have to hold off on Greece, but okay, let me go quickly. By the um, way, I just want to say one more thing about Ireland. When I arrived there, I was excited because at the UK. Everything's biometric, so they don't stamp your passport. It's like they, like, scan your irises. When I arrived in Dublin, they do stamp passports, and it was my brand-new passport. My previous one, 10 years, a great 10-year run, and it expired. I went through all the stamps nostalgically on the flight over there, and I tweeted all the flags of the countries I'd been to. It was cool. So this was a brand-new virgin passport, and I just couldn't help myself at customs or at the passport control in Dublin. I told the guy— this is my first stamp in my new passport. It was, you know, I'm so excited. And he had his hand on the stamp thing. And he looked at me and he paused. And I couldn't tell what he was going to do. And with this dramatic flair, he goes, it's an honor. And then stamped it super hard. It was, I laughed out loud. Welcome to Ireland. Okay, Greece, go ahead. No, no, no. I still have Irish questions. Oh, you do? Okay, please, please. I don't want to cut that short. In every hotel bathroom... Do they actually have Irish spring soap? I, I actually – I don't know. I did use the soap. I would imagine it was probably Irish soap. I think the butter that I ate was probably Irish butter. Oh, right? Kerry. Kerry Gold butter is delicious. And I have to confess, I did not order a Guinness ever. <sighs> I had a sip of one just to do it. I don't like it. I don't like Guinness beer. It looks cool. The pours are all exciting. I just go with a more traditional sort of lager type situation. And then cocktails as well. Oh, do they have whiskey there? They sure do. Okay. I have two more questions. Is the beer really warm on tap? No, I had cold beer. Okay. And then um, I'm going to give you some names and you tell me if you've seen them, okay, when you were there. Liam Neeson. Bono. Okay, the answer, I'm just going to do a collective no. But, but I, didn't, I didn't go through my list yet. All right. Carry on. Liam, Liam Neeson, Pierce Brosnan, Colin Farrell. I can't say these names. Bono, Van Morrison, Snow Patrol. Didn't even know. Any of them, did you see? No. You don't seem to really be interested in answering my question, so let's go fly over to Greece now. I, I answered very uh, succinctly. The answer to a question that I had anticipated what the answer would be already. But, yes, okay, so we're on to Greece and Kennedy's party. Okay, so how long does it actually take you to get to – from? is it like one plane over? No, we had to go through Frankfurt, Germany. Did you have any bratwurst? Did not, but had part of a soft pretzel. Ooh, that was my next question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was there for like four hours at the, at the airport, so. Okay, so we get to Greece – now, this is a party, right? This is a group of people that you're really good friends with, correct? It's a group of close friends of Kennedy's with whom I'm also friends and then some of Kennedy's family as well. Seventeen of us in total at this unbelievable villa that she had rented 
that was huge. It was massive, and it was at the top of this very steep hill. So it was a workout every day just to get into the villa, but totally worth it. What did you guys do? Like, was it just very relaxing, you know, during the day where you just at the pool? I think I saw you on some sort of boat, which I'm surprised you went on because we have talked many a time that mm-hmm. you don't do mm-hmm. boats. So when I saw the video, I was a little surprised. Well, I took some Dramamine. Oh, okay. Before the trip and during the trip. So the Dramamine was a lifesaver. I was prepared for that. Yeah, Kennedy also chartered a boat. Actually, on our recommendation, because last time we were there, we had such a fun time on the water around this beautiful island. I said, she said, if there's one thing that we need to do in your recommendation, what would it be? And I said, definitely like a catamaran for the day. So we did that one day. We did a beach day another day. And then she had made dinner reservations in the evenings at these places with just vistas that are so beautiful, they look fake. They look like they couldn't be real. One was so impressive, I tweeted a photo. Even Brit Hume was impressed. He tweeted at me, very nice. Where is that? <laughs> uh, so we we had a very good time and ate very well in Greece. And many, many toasts and many, many drinks, as you might imagine, when you get that crew together led by her. Will you invite Brit Hume on the next trip? Well, that's not my call. That's Kennedy's call. Uh, he might have been invited on this one, for all I know. Maybe he declined, couldn't make it for some reason. But we did have quite a Fox on-air contingent there. At one point, it even occurred to me, we had literally the full complement of an outnumbered couch. We had four on-air Fox ladies and then hashtag one lucky guy, me. So it was Kennedy, Dagan McDowell, Kat Timpf, and Emily Campagno. And we've all done that show. We've all done it together at some point, not that exact group, but probably four of the five in different iterations. Emily is one of the permanent co-hosts of Outnumbered. So that was fun. So we took a photo of the five of us, me in the middle, obviously, as if we were sort of near the virtual couch, except behind us is like a Santorini Greece sunset. Spectacular. I posted that on my Instagram, and it's doing extremely well. If you want to go at Guy P. Benson, maybe give me a follow, maybe double tap that photograph. I'd like to think that it's a good photo of me, but I suspect that a lot of the likes might have to do with Uh, the ladies flanking me. It's just a guess that I have, but you can go be the judge for yourself at Guy P. Benson. That's my Twitter and my Instagram. And my most recent photograph is from Greece with the birthday girl and the aforementioned colleagues as well. So Dan said I probably shouldn't ask this, but I want to talk about your shorts. Maybe that's another conversation from that picture. My shorts? Yes. Okay. I actually did get some comments on the shorts. So Dan felt it was an appropriate length. I thought they could have been a little longer. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were hoping they'd be shorter. No, no, no. We heard we heard from another Fox News colleague who was not on the trip, who shall remain nameless, who texted my husband saying that I should never be allowed to wear pants again. I should only wear those shorts, including on the outnumbered couch. And so that was a, a rave review from someone I was not expecting to hear that from, but I appreciate it. They were, truth be told, Adam's shorts. But I thought they fit pretty well, and uh, I think it looks not terrible. So I stand by the decision. I stand by it, too. Great length. I wear the same <laughs> short length. Thank you. I do, absolutely. It is, and it Wyatt is nodding. Okay. Christine, you are outnumbered. No, but here's the thing. I'm just, I just imagine wherever you go, beaches, it doesn't matter where you are, you're always in your blazer. <laughs> And your jeans and your shoes. Yes, I, sh- I shower. I shower in my blazer, actually. Boat shoes and blazer. All right, I'm getting I'm told we got to go. I have one last question for you, and we're going to wrap it up. You mentioned Dagan on the trip. Did you mm-hmm. ask her when she's going to come on the show? 
<laughs> she comes on the show. I'm just Usually uh, when there's some economic news, she comes on. And they've all been on the show. we got to get Emily on a little bit more, I would say. But these are regulars on the Guy Benson show, and I do their shows. And it was just one big, happy Fox family, which was very cool. Plus Kennedy's family and, you know, plus ones and significant others. Just a very cool time. Happy birthday to Kennedy. As I said in a toast to her on our first night at this beautiful restaurant, I raised a glass and I said, she is the coolest person that I know. She is also one of the kindest people that I know. And that is a very rare combination, especially in this business. And it's pretty special. And I said, not only is she close with all of us, she literally had officiated two of the weddings of the couples that were on this trip. Ours and then Kat and Cam as well. And I said the only thing that was wrong about this experience and this whole picture is that there's no way she could possibly be 50. Come on. How is that woman 50 years old? Well, they're still in Greece. They have one more day in Greece, That most of that crew. So a happy birthday, Kennedy. We love you. But we are up on a break and out of time. It's the weekend. It's a long weekend. The Labor Day edition of The Guy Benson Show is on Monday. You can... Listen live. You can get that podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Back here with a live new show on Tuesday. We will talk to you then. Enjoy the long weekend. And thank you for listening. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.